This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. This is the Science Podcast for October 29, 2021. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. First up this week, we have Why Brainless Animals Sleep. Jellyfish, hydra, roundworms, they all have a version of sleep. Liz Panisi is a staff writer for Science. She talks about what we can learn from these simple sleepers. Next, we're going to look at centuries of alien invasions, or put more simply, invasive insects moving around the planet with trade. Matthew McLaughlin is a research economist at the USDA Economic Research Service. He wrote in Science Advances about how long it takes us to realize an invader is already here. Finally, a book on racism and search algorithms. Angela Saini is the host for a series of interviews on race and science. This month, she talks with Safia Noble about her book, Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism. Did you know that jellyfish can sleep? Brainless creatures like hydra, roundworms, these things seem to need sleep or something like sleep. This week, we have a special issue on sleep, and there are a ton of open questions in this area. Liz Panisi is a staff writer for science. She wrote about what simple sleepers can tell us about the big sleep questions. Hi, Liz. Hi. I love the way you open your piece with these really existential sleep thoughts. How can something without a brain or even neurons sleep? And why do they need to sleep? My favorite, though, is this idea of sleep as the default state and that wakefulness is the evolved state. Can you expand on that? For a long time, people have just thought about sleep in terms of something that you need for the brain. And now recently they've been finding sleep-like or sleep behavior in ever simpler creatures. And that's led some researchers to speculate when sleep evolved and to think that it evolved in the very, very beginning of life. And so there's one idea out there that life started out as a pretty dormant thing and that wakefulness, in other words, the ability to respond to the environment and adapt to the environment is a secondary state. 
Whether or not this is true, I have no idea. <laughs> but it's an interesting way to think about it because it it kind of puts the burden of wakefulness on us rather than the burden of sleep when we're trying to figure out how it evolved. Exactly. If we start with brainy creatures, maybe it's a little easier here. How do we define sleep in animals with brains? The definition of sleep has shifted over time depending on the technology we have for measuring sleep. So, of course, early on, it was just what happens when you go to sleep. You lay down, you become oblivious to the world around you, you wake up on sharp noises, but you might not wake up if someone walks by you. So you're what they call unresponsive to stimuli. And another key thing is if you don't get the sleep you need, you have to make up for it. So that was one definition that held sway up until the 50s or 60s. Then researchers developed ways to put electrodes, which measure electrical activity, on the surface of the brain or the scalp. So, you know, you can think about those little wires attached by little adhesive tape. They attach electrodes to the surface of the head. And they watch what happens in the brain. And they notice that when people sleep, they have two kinds of sleep. They have active sleep or REM sleep, and then quiet sleep or non-REM sleep. And so for a period of time, that's how researchers really knew that people were asleep and really defined sleep in that way by the electrical activity in the brain. So what happens after looking at the brain waves? What have we done new things since then? Since then, people began to think about, well, maybe something besides mammals sleep. For the longest time, we thought only mammals and maybe birds went to sleep and needed to sleep because they have big brains and those brains need to rest and rejuvenate. But then at the turn of the 21st century, some researchers started looking at fruit flies and lo and behold, found they sleep. But of course, they didn't have electrodes to put on the scalps of these fruit flies. So they turned to the older definition of sleep, which is based on the behavior, laying down, stopping moving, becoming unresponsive, needing to have makeup for deprived sleep. And using those criteria They figured out that, yes, fruit flies sleep, and so do crayfish and octopus and roundworms and a whole bunch of other things. How can you even detect sleep in something like a jellyfish, which I think is one of the examples that you bring up in the story? They focused on a behavior and started videoing whether or not that behavior changed. So with these jellyfish, which are called upside down jellyfish because they hang out with their tentacles facing the surface of the water. They notice that they tend to spend time at the bottom of an aquarium, say, if you watch them in the lab, or the bottom of the shallow area where they're staying. And so they realize since these jellyfish sort of stay put and are not constantly floating around, they could actually video them over a 24-hour period to see if they change what they did. And what they watched is how often the jellyfish pulse and move their tentacles in a uniform way to get water to pass over them. 
And when they videoed them over the day and the night, they noticed that the pulse rate changes from about 60 beats a minute to about 39 beats a minute. And so they thought, okay, that might be sleep. So to further test that, they then looked at whether or not the jellyfish were unresponsive. In other words, like you, when you're asleep, you don't notice when somebody walks by. Does the jellyfish notice when you do something to them that might disturb them? And the way they tested that is they made a false bottom in the aquarium and basically pulled the bottom out from underneath them. Now, during the day, as soon as you do that, the jellyfish swim down to the new bottom, no hesitation. But at night, when they're pulsing only 39 beats and are maybe asleep, it takes them quite a long while to sort of recognize that they're not at the bottom anymore and move back down. And what if you deprive them of their slow beat time? Then what you notice the next night that they sleep, they sleep more soundly. In other words, they pulse even more slowly and they pulse slowly for an ever long period of time. So in a sense, they're making up for lost sleep. Can we call that sleep or is this just a circadian rhythm? Is this just syncing up with the processes of the world that are all synced up to the sun and the darkness and the light periods? Well, you know, that's a difficult question. And there's some debate in the research community about whether jellyfish and hydra and other simple animals really do sleep. And I think that more and more sleep researchers are coming around to thinking that it's not just mammals that sleep and that sleep can look a little different in other organisms, but they all have this restful state with the same characteristics of sleep that we have ourselves. Right. What purpose would sleep or a sleep-like state serve in animals like this? You know, when I think about what sleep does for us, it's clearing out waste from the brain, consolidating memories. What could be happening in, say, a hydra or a jellyfish? So scientists are not sure. But what they think might be happening is the sleep state may be a time for cells to sort of get rid of toxic waste that they built up by working all day. They also think that it's a time that damage to DNA can be repaired, that it happens during the light part of the day. They also think that it's sort of a way to rejuvenate and reorganize. If it's not focused on the brain, if the brain is not the key client of sleep processes, other tissues are involved. So does that mean that our tissues in mammals, in people, are also going through these processes? And can we detect that? There is evidence that the immune system, the gut, and other organs in the body do benefit from sleep and are impaired by sleep deprivation. So once scientists began to realize that other parts of the body besides the brain might need sleep, they started thinking about, well, maybe those, how do those other parts of the body signal that they need sleep? And so there have been some discoveries, primarily in other organisms like mice, that implicate muscles, for example, and the gut in controlling sleep to some degree. 
I can see my legs trying to tell me that we're tired. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. We've identified sleep as a behavioral thing and also as a, a series of brain activities, things that all can help us define sleep from this macro scale. What about the micro scale? Can we say this is the cellular version of sleep? This is the biochemical version of sleep. We can't quite yet say this is the cellular version of sleep or the biochemical version of sleep. But what researchers are finding is that genes that are related to sleep, either helping to cause it or helping you to stay awake or whatever, that they've discovered in mutant mice or mutant fruit flies, those same genes are in hydra and jellyfish and even a simpler group of animals called placozoans. So what they're beginning to wonder is whether there is a molecular signature of sleep that you can test for in these simpler organisms that don't behave exactly the way we behave when we sleep. And could those be targets for investigation in sleep in us or even in problems with sleep? Yes, I think so. And I think researchers are excited about studying sleep in other animals because the sleep pathways, the genetic pathways, the biochemical pathways that regulate sleep in them might be a little bit simpler and more basic than the pathways that regulate sleep in humans. And it's been notoriously difficult to really understand sleep in humans on a biochemical basis. And the idea is is that if you can determine what the basic process is by which the cell is told to go to sleep and the cell is told to wake up and the molecules involved with that, then you can develop drugs that target those molecules and help people sleep better or overcome the sleep disorders that some people suffer from. Do you feel like now is a time where you're really seeing a change in, in the way the research is being approached? I think so. I'm a little biased because I, I'm i a little bit less human-focused in my reporting than other people. But I do think that there's a growing appreciation of the broader nature of sleep in terms of what organs it serves and how it's controlled. All right. Thank you so much, Liz. Okay. Well, thank you. Have a good day. Liz Panisi is a staff writer for Science. You can find a link to the article we talked about and the rest of the sleep special issue at science.org slash podcast. Don't touch that dial. Up next, we have researcher Matthew McLaughlin. He talks about why we don't see more invasive animals every time international trade goes up. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Change your job and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there's no better, more trusted resource than Science Careers. And it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, upload your resume or CV to the searchable database, or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today.
Here in Indiana, it's that special time of year when the stink bugs start to come inside. Marmorated brown stink bugs are crawling up my screens and creeping in doorways. But this is not actually a very long-standing tradition here in Indiana. This particular insect is an invasive. The marmorated stink bug came to the U.S. from Asia sometime in the 90s, we think. It's not always easy to tell when an invasive species arrives. Matthew McLaughlin is a research economist at the U.S. Department of Agriculture Economic Research Service. This week, he wrote in Science Advances about the time between when an invasive species gets here and when we figure out that it's here. Hi, Matt. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. There's kind of a mystery at the heart of this study. Trade with other countries has increased drastically over the last century or so, but we haven't seen a perfectly parallel increase in the arrival of invasive species. More trade doesn't automatically mean more invaders. So when you look back at these two timelines of trade and invasive species, where do you see the paths diverge the most? Where do you see the biggest disconnects? This study goes all the way back into the mid-19th century. So we see a pretty continuous disconnect between these two series over time. We have these periods of exponential growth, like in the early 20th century, like in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. But we don't always see a corresponding increase in the number of discoveries. This coupling seemed to be closer in the early 20th century and much more disconnected in the later part of the 20th century. What were you looking for along these timelines? What were you trying to take into account when you were trying to understand this relationship? There are a lot of things that can affect how non-native species are established in a new country. So we really wanted to pare it down to what are the most important drivers. And we thought about what contributes most to non-native species introductions, particularly for our group of hemiptera species. These are a group of plant-feeding insects. So plant life plant imports are going to be the main pathway by which they're introduced. We can't account for all the changes, and there's many of them. The types of ships changed, inspection technologies changed, what we bought from foreign countries, where we bought it changed. So we really tried to pare it down to the most essential relationship we could identify. Does country of origin seem to have a big effect? Yeah, absolutely. So the country of origin is something that we collapsed down or aggregated into these biological regions. We know that these insects tend to move around between countries. They're not necessarily going to respect borders. So we had to think about imports from these larger areas within which the bugs are free to move around but then can be imported by any of the member countries. Is it the climate important? So where it's coming from, you know, the climate there, does it have to match here in the U.S. for us to see more invasives from there? There are some studies that focus on this in particular, this question. This study did not focus on that question. We do see that northern hemisphere countries and areas like Europe and Asia tend to be the largest sources of these non-native species introductions. Whereas Southern Hemisphere areas, places like Australia, Indonesia, and places along these lines tend to have fewer species introductions associated with them. What did you find in your research were the biggest drivers of this disconnect between what's going on with trade and what's going on with invasive species? 
We found that the passage of time explains a heck of a lot. So <laughs> uh, we <we've, laughs> found that marginal and average introduction risk or establishment risk really changed a lot over our time period in that average introductions went down somewhere in the order of 80 to 99% across all our world regions over the last 50 years of our time cycle, not even over the whole time horizon. So we really see by the end of the time cycle, the risk that each unit of trade introduces really diminishes. Is that because we're better at looking for pests? Is that because we've already gotten all the pests we're going to get? Do we know anything about why? We allowed for attenuation or this feature that non-native species pools might be exhausted, that there are no new species left to introduce and establish. We didn't find that. We didn't find significant evidence of that sort of attenuation. What we can say is that sanitary policies really changed during this period. So in the 1920s, we had the Plant Quarantine Act. In the 60s, we had a similar set of escalating inspection policies. And so another USDA agency, I'm part of the Economic Research Service, APHIS is uh, charged with doing these inspections and the technologies they're using and the amount of resources they commit to this effort are really going to change over time. I was really surprised at this one number in the paper, the median lag time between arrival and discovery that you report or that you that you cite is 80 years. Did that surprise you? That did surprise us. We found that even among some of the damaging species where we know exactly when they were introduced and when, when they were found, we found some lags between establishment and discovery of upwards of 40 years. And so if we're considering all species, some of which don't cause much damage at all, you know, having a longer lag isn't too surprising. Additionally, we use a proxy of discoveries of native species, which stretches back all the way into the 18th century, meaning that some of these native hemiptera species that we're finding in this country, they've gone undiscovered since the beginning of record keeping. So several hundred years. So, wow. Yeah. So I think it, it was it was very interesting we have a confidence interval that would include something on the shorter end of a couple of decades, but we find some circumstantial evidence that supports our finding of a very long lag between establishment and discovery. Does that mean, you know, using that number, that there are likely a lot of invasives here that might yet be undetected? Our results suggest that upwards of a quarter of this group of non-native species, the hemiptera species, may not have been discovered at the end of our study in 2012. That's a substantial portion. It's about 250 species compared to, at that point, we had discovered about 700 species. One of the goals of this paper seems to be to model the relationship between trade and invasives and figure out what the main drivers are that disconnect them. What lessons can we take away from this I think there are a couple of lessons. I think for targeting inspection efforts, this can provide some really great background information. We see that the marginal risk changes pretty dramatically over time, and it changes across world regions. What this means is, is that we may have a relatively risky trading partner that then the risk from their imports decreases over time. In contrast, some imports may become more risky over time. The other thing that we found that was extremely interesting was thinking very carefully about how to account for some of these really important mechanisms in the discovery process was really helpful. 
So we have a nice proxy for search effort in here. And what this means is, is that how hard are we looking for the bugs? It's very hard to measure. This can be done by academic institutions, governments, individuals, just about anyone can look for bugs. So it's really hard to know how much search effort is going on. So we use discoveries of native hemiptera species to proxy for this. And that really helped us to identify a very important part of the establishment and discovery process. And I think that this can open a lot of new avenues for thinking about how to use your existing information to answer the questions that you're looking at about non-native species discoveries. Is it possible to take this approach, making a model like this, looking at the history of discovery and helping other places in the world model their invasives influx and maybe help abate that? I'll stay away from the policy implications of it, but using similar information, we could certainly study the establishment and discovery process in other contexts. There's nothing that's necessarily unique about the U.S. other than we have some great data resources that allow us to look back at trade into the mid-19th century and that we have an abundance of species records to draw from. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Sarah. Matthew McLaughlin is a research economist at the U.S. Department of Agriculture Economic Research Service. You can find a link to the Science Advances paper we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for the next installment in our series on books at the intersection of race and science. This month, host Angela Saney talks with Safia Noble about her book, Algorithms of Oppression. What is algorithmic oppression? I'm Angela Saini, science journalist and host of this series of podcasts looking at books on science and race. We've reached episode four, and this month we're asking how the dream of a democratic and fair internet, a meritocratic marketplace of ideas, degenerated into what we have now. Search engines that, until recently, if you typed in the phrase black girl, would offer you porn. This is the subject of Algorithms of Oppression, a 2018 book by Sophia Noble, Associate Professor of Gender Studies and African American Studies at the University of California, Los Angeles, where she's also the co-director of the UCLA Center for Critical Internet Inquiry. Last month, Noble also became one of the latest recipients of the prestigious MacArthur Fellowship. What we find in search engines about people and culture is important, she writes. Her argument is that our search results become part of the process of identity formation. So, what do we do when the results are unfair? Sophia, thank you so much for being here. Now, before you entered academia, you were in marketing and advertising. So, what prompted you to explore this particular subject as a scholar? One of the things that I realized as I was in graduate school was that everyone was kind of really riding high on Google at the time. This was kind of the early-ish days of Google when it was really going mainstream. And I remembered how much we had spent time and energy trying to game search results when I was working in advertising. It really kind of seemed like a throwaway thing. I really hadn't even thought about it too much. I thought most people understood that they were gameable systems. And yet when I was in graduate school in academia, a lot of people were not talking about these kinds of systems in that way. There were really only a handful of people. And then Siva uh, Vaityanathan wrote this incredible book called The Googleization of Everything and Why We Should Worry. And that was it. I knew I wanted to 
double click on that a little bit more. And mostly it was because like in advertising, there are so many things that are just banal. They're just every day and they seem mundane, but they're actually incredibly calculated. And that was how I was thinking about search. Like everybody just uses it, not really thinking twice. It seems like an everyday experience. But if you look a little bit closer, you'll see there's a real orchestration and a manipulation happening there. We do get this impression when we go online that our search results are a ranking based on popularity and that these search engines like Google are just innocent victims of our prejudices and biases. Do you mean to say that these platforms and their paid advertisers are actually having a hand in skewing what we see? Really, I think when you see how these technologies work, you see that Google Search is a huge advertising platform. There is a relationship, despite the fact that their executives still argue that there's no relationship between advertising and the search results we get. But of course, there is a relationship. And I try to explain what that relationship means for the public, such that when you do searches for various minoritized communities, for example, and this was what really kicked off my research, was I started looking to see how girls of color were represented and different kinds of people and communities were represented. And I was stunned to see that Black girls, Latina girls, Asian girls were all represented pornographically. They all had porn ads served up next to those results. And the question is, how would any vulnerable community like children or like an, a minoritized community ever be able to compete with huge industries like the porn industry? You cannot compete against that. And you also cannot use popularity because you're only a fraction of the majority of the population. So many of us by now are familiar with the issue of built-in bias in technology. We've heard a lot about that over the last years, not least because of your work. But what is it about the bias of search engines in particular that's so dangerous? When I talk to my students at UCLA and I'm teaching them about these concepts, I say to them, well, you know, if you can know everything in a Google search engine, why are you at UCLA? Why go to college? And they're like, okay, Dr. Noble. And it's like, you know, I'm trying to kind of be cheeky with them and say, what we learn in more complex fashions is really important. Some things need to be studied for a longer period of time in order to have expertise for us to really know what we know. We probably shouldn't train ourselves as a public to rely purely on search engines. The tech sector and search, Google, have really come to, I think, displace a lot of important knowledge and education institutions. And I'm fighting for the public goods, schools, libraries, universities. I think those things are really important. I don't think they should be replaced. Now, does search have a place in our society? Of course, it's valuable for sorting through the nonsense. For those of us who've been on the internet for a really long time, pre-search engines, which I have been, we know that search engines have really helped us organize a lot of things. And there are things that it's really nice to pull up a recipe quickly or to shop. But I think for more serious inquiries, we don't want to lose the thousands of years of human knowledge to just the expediency of a commercial advertising platform. And it's not just that. I mean, one of the things you explore is how identity formation, how we think about ourselves racially and in terms of gender, but as individuals also comes to be shaped by the search results that we get. And if those search results are skewed, then that also has an impact on how people think about their identity. 
Well, it is true that this also is an important dimension of, of the things that I write about in the book. I mean, one of the reasons why I was so taken aback by seeing girls of color represented pornographically as sex objects and commodities to be kind of sold and purchased and consumed in a search engine is because I thought about my own daughter and all of the girls of color in my own life and around the world using search engines to learn more about themselves and their own interests and coming upon these kinds of results. What does that say for people who are confronted by thinking that such a powerful authority system, which quite frankly, Google is an authority system. I mean, people relate to it as an all-knowing, powerful knowledge producer in our society. So that's important that we confront that and think about that. But then on the more extreme case, I document in the book the way that Dylan Roof, who For those who may not know, Dylan Roof was a mass murderer in the United States. He opened fire on African-Americans worshiping in Charleston, South Carolina at a Bible study, African-Americans who welcomed him in to their Bible study. And he was a white supremacist and he opened fire and murdered nine African-Americans that night. And so one of the things we learned from Dylan Roof is that in his manifesto, he talked about how he was doing... Google searches about the United States, about history, about people. He was looking for certain terms and he fell down a rabbit hole that convinced him that there was a Jewish problem, that the United States' effort at being a multiracial democracy was actually, to him, a farce. So I think on the more extreme case, people's identities or their radicalization, the way in which they are preyed upon their curiosities by companies like YouTube and Google is extremely important. But I think we have to look to see what internet technologies are doing to position themselves as substitutes for learning and for true, fair, and equitable education, not just for the people who they might victimize, but for themselves too. You write that your work comes from a Black feminist perspective. Can you explain what that means? And and do you think that kind of perspective might be useful in the sciences more broadly? I mean, first of all, it makes the issues and the concerns of Black women and Black people kind of central to a line of studies so that we ask different questions when we think about centering Black people or vulnerable people, marginalized people. So there had been many, many books written about Google, for example. But when I took the issues as they face Black women and girls, and I put that at the center of my inquiry, and then from there researched out, well, then we start to see different kinds of evidence emerge because we're asking different questions. So really, it's about a perspective, a a way of doing research that centers vulnerable people and allows us to ask different questions and then hopefully discover through our research different kinds of solutions. And one of those, of course, in my work has been thinking about strengthening civil and human rights with respect to the tech sector. So it's very important that we are thoughtful about the way in which science is conducted and research is conducted in ways that harm people who are vulnerable, Black people, Indigenous people, and Black and Indigenous women and children in particular. So I think what people like you and I do is we look very closely at those histories and we do science differently in a way that does not 
exacerbate or foment or enact harm. Science could learn a lot from that because I will tell you, we are in this crisis right now around COVID-19 and it has actually been the missteps of scientists of the past who have created the conditions for people to reject science in a moment where we need it so desperately. This is the kind of responsibility that I think scientists have to have about understanding issues of race and class and power and gender, which is really what these perspectives do, is they deepen and and sharpen our analysis so that we do not treat people in disposable ways when we do our work. Finally, just going back to what we were talking about at the beginning, when we're on search engines, when we're using internet technologies, they can feel like a black box. We just have no idea what these algorithms are doing. But one interesting example you give in your book is when one Twitter user pointed out that an image search for three black teenagers on Google brought back mainly police mugshots, and then his post went, went viral. People later found that Google must have tweaked something in the algorithms after this post went viral because Afterwards, the same search now included more wholesome pictures of Black teenagers, not just mugshots. And the same thing happened with your search results for Black girls after you wrote about it. So what is going on here? Does it reveal that search engines such as Google can actually shape their results more than we assume? And why are they waiting to be caught before acting then? Yeah, this is a really interesting phenomenon, which is that in the United States, for the most part, Google argues that the search results are just the search results and there's nothing that they can do about them. But we know that where Google operates in other parts of the world, for example, in Germany and France, it complies with the laws of the land. Now, in Germany and France, anti-Semitism is illegal. You cannot traffic in any kind of Nazi paraphernalia ideas. It's out. And part of that is because There's a heightened awareness and a true diligence around ensuring that there is no Holocaust against Jewish people again in Europe. We don't have the same pressures, tensions, and recognition of, say, the indigenous Holocaust in the United States or in North America or the African Holocaust of the Middle Passage and 200 years of enslaving African peoples. So, There isn't the kind of sensibility in the United States or the will or the law to stop trafficking in racism. In France and Germany, they also understand more acutely the relationship between propaganda circulating, racist propaganda circulating, homophobic circulating uh, propaganda, and violence against those people. We, again, have so many First Amendment absolutists in the United States many of whom are also in Silicon Valley, you know, kind of stemming from the libertarian ideologies that are kind of the bedrock of Silicon Valley founder culture. The absolutism and the willingness and the desire to fight for the worst to be made available is part of what we're dealing with. Now, when there's a public relations crisis, And something terrible is, let's say, brought to Google by the White House or the Anti-Defamation League or someone like me writes a book or there's a terrible viral story. They will go in and adjust and they can because we know they adjust and make sure that they pull out and moderate and have a huge workforce dedicated to pulling down and taking down websites or content that is against the law. In the U.S., what they probably mostly do this around is 
trafficking, child sexual exploitation, because that's illegal. So they have a lot of people and resources dedicating to make sh- making sure that that doesn't show up in search results. Believe it or not, there are people who spend their lives trying to make sure it does reach the public. So what we have is a company that has different rules in different countries and jurisdictions, depending on what the regulations or the laws are in those spaces. What that tells us is that if we were to have much more robust civil rights laws on the books in the United States protecting protected classes from being targeted, being harmed, being shown fraudulent or discriminatory ads from having racist propaganda circulated around them, that these companies could comply with that. Part of the reason that I argue in the book that they don't is because that kind of material is incredibly profitable. Unfortunately, racism and sexism are big business. And the more titillating and egregious the material is that's available to people, the more people will watch it. Sophia Noble, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. And thank you at home for listening in. I'm Angela Saini, and I hope you'll join me for the fifth episode in this series, One Month From Now, when I'll be speaking to psychologist Beverly Daniel Tatum about her best-selling book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at science.org slash podcast. You can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi, with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.